Today's episode is brought to you by Craftsy, calling all crafters. Are you ready to dive deep into your favorite crafting projects and learn new techniques along the way? Then it's time to join Craftsy Premium Membership. For only $1.49, you'll receive a full year of access to expert-led tutorials, patterns, and projects in every category you can imagine. With a massive library of resources at your fingertips, you'll be able to create your best work yet and bring your crafting dreams to life. Don't wait. Sign up now at CraftsyOffers.com and discover the endless possibilities of Craftsy Premium Membership. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 246 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about sewing and quilting and embroidery with my guest, Bianca Springer. Bianca is a garment sewist, a pattern designer, a sewing instructor, and an experimental quilter. She is the creator of unique sewing pattern weights to improve sewing efficiency and speed. Bianca is a contributing writer for Sew News Magazine, Creative Machine Embroidery Magazine, and is a fiber artist. She shares her talents as a brand ambassador for Shannon Fabrics, Nature's Fabric, and is an arrow creator. Bianca is the author of the newly released book, Represent, Embroidery, Stitch 10 Colorful Projects, and 100 Designs Featuring a Full Range of Shapes, Skin Tones, and Hair Textures. Bianca Springer, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate getting a chance to talk with you. Absolutely. I love your new book, and we're going to definitely get there. (laughs) But I would like to learn a little bit more about you. So um, let's go way back. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were like as a kid? Oh, goodness. Um, I was born and raised in Nassau, Bahamas, and I am one of five. And my in my home, my mom always had a sewing machine out. It was ever present. Um, I wore uniforms to school. And so every August, I remember just standing and she's taking my measurements and, you know, getting all the numbers together so she could make my uniforms for the upcoming school year. And I just remember being fascinated by the fact that she would just write the numbers down and then boom, I had a pleated skirt or boom, there's this <laughs> jumper. And, you know, and it, she made it seem so effortless. So it was such a natural extension of just what she did that the majesty of that was a bit lost because it was so it was ever present. Um, So sewing and creating was very um, utilitarian in our home. So if I needed something hemmed, I could go to the machine and do it. If um, if she needed me to help with something, there I was. And so it was just every day. It was no normal in my family um, just to see creative things happen in that way. She had a massive pattern cabinet with uh, amazing Vogue patterns from the 50s and the 60s. And she had tremendous style. I, I love just sitting at that cabinet and looking through the Dior patterns and seeing these wonderful couture designers um, that she, she loved. And so that I think just started to deposit those images of creating and design in my mind. Um, At school, we had arts and crafts classes, and there's a a type of fabric that we produce in the Bahamas called androsia. And it's it's a batik fabric that um, we use wood blocks and wax to make impressions on the fabric. Well, not impressions, to to paint, to create a resist on the fabric. And then the fabric is dyed and the wax is removed. And in my school 
my arts and crafts classes, we learned how to draw designs, paint with wax, dye fabric. Um, so just integrating the cultural aspect of um, our Androsia fabric in daily school life was something that, you know, is cemented in my brain. Uh, I also learned hand embroidery in, in school, in my arts and crafts classes. I remember uh, drawing a hibiscus on a pillowcase, uh, well, on fabric that I then embroidered and then turned into a pillowcase. Um, and it was just, you know, every day it was art creating and using your hands to make things beautiful was as commonplace as learning the periodic table. It was as essential as that. Um, so I just really appreciate that, not necessarily that as a child, there was a pivotal creative explosion in my mind, but I just really appreciate that throughout my growing up, throughout my you know, childhood experience, creating and putting your mark on the world in some way was just what you did. Yeah. And, and I'm fascinated by the fact that your mom had really good style, was really interested in style and fashion and sewed for herself, it sounds like, yes. um, in order to express that. Because I think you have great style and I can see maybe like that through thread where you were looking at what she was wearing and how she was putting herself together and what she was making for herself and sort of that got embedded into your sort of thinking about fashion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have her patterns and we, we lost her several years ago and it you know, it connects me to her to reach in and find that Diane Don Furstenberg wrap dress and make it and, you know, and, and love it the way she loved her version of it. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, she, we, I, I look in the mirror sometimes and I'm startled at how much I look like her, but also the, I, I take pride in knowing that her tremendous style is something I appreciate and I embrace. And, you know, I don't have, there's no stretch. You know, sometimes you look at someone's uh, style and you think, oh, that works great for them, but you don't necessarily feel like it's yours. And I look at these patterns and I am so excited and I'm like, oh, I'm going to make this. And then, you know, I have a little note on the back for all that came from her stash and I flip it and I'm like, of course, this is from my mom. Of course, this is, this looks like her. So yeah, I just love, um, I love those, the influences of the times that influenced her and now feeling like I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to like our styles blend. We have very similar styles. There's not a stretch for me to connect with her in that way. And so I really love that. And I'm also struck by the fact that she sewed your school uniforms because I had a child who went to a school with a uniform for three years and we were told go to Land's End, you can select this blazer, you can select this skirt, and that's it. And, you know, everyone had the same Land's End blazer in their size, Land's End skirt, and you know, whatever it yes. was. So the fact that the school or in some way, there was like a sewing pattern where you couldn't make the uniform is like totally a different experience. Oh, yeah. And I remember, you know, in high school in particular, I remember one year showing up on the first day of school and looking at my, my best friend had. So our uniforms was a pleated skirt, a plaid pleated skirt with a waistband, um, back zipper. And we had a button down shirt with an embroidered emblem on the pocket. And I and a, 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 a necktie, depending on your um, responsibility uh, as you know a prefect or things like that. You had different accessories. And excuse me, I remember walking in and I was looking cute. I was happy in my uniform. It was school. I was happy to see my friends. And I just remember my best friend was walking towards me, and her pleats were about two inches wide. May no more than that, maybe three inch wide pleats, and she had a three and a half inch waistband. And that proportion on her body with the waistband was so flattering, and she just looked so amazing. And I'm I remember just looking at my one inch waistband and my very narrow pleats, which I loved, and you know, I I appreciated the work, but in that moment, the idea that 
we both were wearing the same thing, but in very different ways was solidified for me as well that, you know, every you can add your own personal spin and style to something and get a completely different look with the same materials. And uh, the next year, I'm like, oh, can I have a wider waist? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, great story and a great lesson. You're so right. Very interesting. Okay. And it's interesting too these these moments that you like remember from childhood that have to do with fabric, with fashion, with clothing, and and how they stick with you. It's that's so yes. interesting. So, um, okay, so when you were, you know, in high school, thinking about your future, what did you want to study? You know, when you graduated and, and went off to, to school. So I was always, I felt like I always wanted to be a helper. I felt like I, I, I was a natural problem solver. Um, and I, I think I'm empathetic. And so my track was psychology. So my plan was to, to be in the helping field in some way. Um, so my undergraduate degree was in psychology. And in college, I started to feel like I don't want to be a clinical psychologist. I didn't, I felt like that was, I wanted to be helpful, but not necessarily I don't know how to explain it. I, I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out where in the helping world I would fit. So after um, I got my undergrad in psychology, I knew I didn't want to go to graduate school right away because I was still uncertain where the next steps would be. So I, I took a job working at a facility for at-risk adolescents. Mm-hmm. And they were children who had been removed from their homes, either because their homes were unsafe or they had some type of interaction with law enforcement and needed to be removed from the home. So I was working with them as a, um, a house parent. So mm-hmm. I would, they, it was a residential facility. So we had, um, they lived there. There, were, there was a school there, a chapel there. So everything was on site. Um, and so I really, that was an opportunity for me to figure out if I wanted to work with kids, if I wanted to work with teens, did what, what was next. Um, and what I learned was I enjoyed that experience, but I wanted something different. <laughs> so I then um, left that job to go to graduate school where I studied conflict analysis and resolution. Oh, wow. Um, and that, you know, peace studies, uh, dispute resolution, facilitation, mm-hmm. that felt good for me. It felt like a way to engage adults in problems that weren't necessarily psychological. I find psychological challenges, I internalize them more than I probably, that, than is healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I felt like distancing myself to some degree from the interpersonal was, would be more beneficial for me and make me more useful to my, uh, my clients. So, um, so yeah, so I studied conflict analysis, got a master's degree. And then, uh, and when I was working at the residential facility, I met my soon to be husband. And so we, we, uh, we got married my first year of graduate school. And once I graduated, he was pursuing a a doctorate in clinical psychology. So we moved to Houston for him to pursue his education. And I got hired on at the University of Houston, where I was working as uh, an, an affirmative action equal opportunity investigator for disputes on campus. So if there were sexual harassment complaints, if there were um, discrimination complaints with the staff or students, I um, investigated those. And from that position, I then went on to the dean of students office, where I was the dean of discipline, where I adjudicated student discipline complaints on campus. Wow, what a cool job. What an important job. And very... Wow, interesting and um, difficult, I would think as well. Yes, yes, I I loved it. I am I am not conflict averse, particularly because I am so solution focused, and 
getting into those situations, I enter them with optimism. I enter them with mm-hmm. a plan to transform people. Even if there isn't a, an expected resolution, I work the conflict and the parties in a way that they can begin to see each other. So it was very satisfying, even in the difficulties, to to get people to see another perspective and to begin to empathize and set aside some of that emotion to get to a solution that can move both parties forward. And I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the results, the transformation of the students who would come back and you know, thank me for listening and thank me for not vilifying them and thank me for the grace that I afforded them in that particular situation and recognizing it was a moment in their life. It wasn't a reflection of who they were. And so I really, I enjoyed it in my brain. My body apparently did not. I mm. so what I've learned is um, I so w- there was an experience where I was um, I was in with a student and he he had, had this was a second or third offense and he was combative he was mm-hmm. verbally combative and it was near the end of the day and he and I were having this discussion about his his situation and throughout the the meeting. I did not feel unsafe. I, mm-hmm. I de-escalated where I could. I did not tone police him. I just let him say what he needed to say, reflected that I understood. And I was just doing my job. And he, by the time we were done, we had come to an understanding. He had de-escalated. He left fine. And as I opened my door to escort him out, my assistant was in the lobby with our police point of contact and she had called him to be on standby because she could hear this discussion outside the door and it was so startling to me because i felt invigorated i felt like we had come to an understanding i felt like he and i had turned a corner that he you know i would not see him again in this circumstance and so i was really alarmed by the fact that and as as an outside observer she thought i was in danger she uh-huh. thought and the fact that the police officer stayed hmm. confirmed for me that he also thought that there was some element of danger and so that was a little you know jarring for me because i felt yeah. like maybe my my willingness to enter the fray and with the plan for a resolution might endanger me and mm. i may not see it i want to take a moment now to talk about our sponsor craftsy here's a message from craftsy At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to adventurous skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $1.49. Visit CraftsyOffers.com to sign up, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $1.49, you'll get a full year of access to over 2,000 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you are an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy's for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 2,000 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $1.49. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. 
And now, back to my conversation with Bianca. It was a little, that was a little disconcerting. Um, but I, it didn't, I continued in my job. I loved it. And, um, we said, I got a panic button and, you know, so we, we set up some, um, reasonable, um, precautions. Um, there was a, a, a fraternity that I had to shut down. And so they're like, look, you look young and you know, you're a, a, a petite, slight woman, maybe we need to make sure you are safe. You might, they may, yeah. you know, there may be repercussions. Yeah. Um, so, so we took those, uh, we took necessary steps to protect my safety. Um, I did not have any, any physical altercations. There was mm-hmm. no, no bad scenario there. Um, but what happened, so all, all that to say, I confronted really difficult situations. I was comfortable in those situations, um, but I didn't understand the toll it was taking on my body. Um, Mm -hmm. My husband and I decided to start a family while I was in that job. And the pregnancy ended up being so complicated and so difficult in large part due to the stress of that job. Yeah. And she ended up, I was on bed rest for months with the pregnancy. And then I returned to work um, for a while. And then I was put on bed rest again. She was delivered prematurely. She was on a heart monitor. And obviously, there were a lot of other physical factors. But the stress of that job, I think, contributed to, um, to, to some of those complications. And the fact that my, my barometer for stress and my tolerance for stress is, is was too high to accommodate this growing. Right. Baby. Right. So, um, so yeah, so that was the turning point for me to, um, to slow down. Yeah. Make some changes in your professional life and your, and just how you were living your life. So you had this premature baby. I also had a very tiny first baby, so I can relate to what that feels like. Yes. Um, and it can be scary. There's a lot that goes, goes on when, when that happens. So, um, so after that, did you decide to, to sort of stay home? And is that when some of the, the sort of sewing or crafting or textiles kind of came back to you? Yes. Yes. I, with her premature delivery and the fact that I was on bed rest for so much of the pregnancy, uh, I had exhausted all of my leave and, I, I could have applied for a family medical leave, which would have held my job for a year. Um, but I had this four pound little girl yeah. on a heart monitor. I wasn't cleared to go back to work. And, you know, we had my, my husband and I had we had worked very uh, we were we're, we're we're good with money. We, we managed our money well. Um, we saved well. We did. You know, we we did a job where for three years we were event planners at an apartment complex and we oh. got to live there for free. And so every month, instead of paying rent, we paid ourselves. So mm-hmm. we were in a position where he was still in graduate school, but we're like, you know what? We can step back. We can mm-hmm. take the time to take care of her. Um, so I, I became a stay-at-home mom with her. And it was really... A, a such a wonderful time to reset. She was is an adorable child. She was in once she was off of the heart monitor. She every she was on track developmentally. She was fun. Um, so I started to um, join some mom groups and I would go to play groups and I saw all these kids in these really adorable clothes and fun stuff and. I'm like shopping and I'm like, okay, this is $44 for a little ruffle skirt and a that she's going to grow out that she's going to grow out of in a month, you know? (laughs) And no shade to the people who are making $44 ruffle skirts, get your money. But but it wasn't going to be me. Um, And so I, I had time at home and I had a sewing machine. So I I just said, you know what, let's get back into this. So I started mm. making her um, clothes and I had forgotten a lot, but 
a lot of it came back to me. Um, so I started making clothes for her. And then I started making clothes for myself. And I would go out and people would compliment us. Oh, your, your outfit's so cute. You guys are so adorable. And I'd be like, oh, thanks. I made them. And people would, you know, get so delighted. Oh, my goodness. You made your clothes. And I'm like, yeah. And so I was saying that so much. And it was, it was just a little joke in our house, you know, every time we went out. And I went to a mom's group, Mocha Moms. And one of the moms stopped me and she's like, I really like what you're wearing. It's really cute. And I said, thanks. I made it. And she's like, oh, I wish I could sew. And I said mm. to her, I said, I can teach you. And I don't think this was the first time she and I met each other. So I don't think she thought I was serious. Mm. And so I'm like, give me a call. And she didn't. And then the next month, I'm there again. Again, she's like, oh, talking to other people in my proximity about her desire to sew. And I said, I know you don't know me. So you probably don't trust when I say I can teach you to sew, but I can teach you to sew. <laughs> so I, I, I just stood up in the room and I'm like, look, anyone who wants to learn how to sew, come to my house, bring your machine, we'll get started. Mm. So I, we, I had five moms at my kitchen table, all of our kids in my living room, they're playing. And we just started sewing for, you know, for our families and just having good time communing, you know, having good conversation, talking about motherhood, parenthood. Um, right. Yeah. And so we I started teaching moms to sew in my home for free. And then I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> This is a job. This is, a job. Yep. This is work. Um, so that transitioned to me um, offering local uh, sewing lessons at, mm-hmm. um, I, I started at a church. My, my, at this point, my daughter was almost two and I needed a mom's day out. I needed a, a break from momming 24 mm-hmm. seven. Um, so I enrolled her in a mom's day out program for a couple days of, of the week. And there, the director, you know, again, admiring our clothes and, you know, we became friends and she um, she offered their rooms. It was the um, oh. yeah, she's like, you know, no one's here on the weekends. If you right. want to come by, we, we can rent a room for you. And she gave me a ridiculously generous rate um, to just come in four, four times a month mm-hmm. and, and teach. And so the, I went from thanks. I made them for me to adding thanks. I made them. So can you SEW when I started teaching. And so the business name came that way and I started teaching in the community. Um, and did you have a website? Cause that's the name of your website. Is, yes. Did you have a website at that time or did you start it after I, that period? I started to blog at that point. Um, okay. And so on the on my blog, I would share. I, actually, I was blogging before the business as I was mm-hmm. just dilly-dallying. Um, yeah. I started to blog mainly because I wanted community. I wanted to, to connect with people. And this was, what, 2008? So mm-hmm. Facebook was, um, was out there, MySpace, Flickr was, you know, where people were connecting on social media. Um, And so I started a blog mainly as a a drop point for multiple pictures or tutorials for people who were interested. Um, And then once I started teaching, I I expanded the Facebook business profile Mm -hmm. and um, eventually a website, but the website came, goodness, super late, like not to what a year and a half ago. Okay. So I was right. It it really started with the blog and were you involved in the online sewing world as well? Like, were you reading other people's sewing blogs and commenting and connecting? This was the early days when really blogging was like a big deal and a really good way to meet people online who had similar interests. Yes. So I, I did, I connected on sewing pattern review first. Sure. Because then like I'm an introvert. So my level of engagement could be, Mm -hmm. I could modify that a little. I could see what people were doing, but there wasn't a need for ongoing 
communication to yep. this, you know, to the extent that on Instagram, you kind of feel like there, there's a requirement to engage in a different way. And on pattern review, you know, I got to see other people making around the world. And I got to, I started to connect with people that way with what I shared. So pattern review was basically where I went for garment sewing connection. Um, and, but I also was on Flickr. Mm -hmm. um, that's the Yahoo photo um, yep. group. We and were I, all on Flickr back in the day. <laughs> yes. Yep. And I liked Flickr because I could connect on specific topics like bag making and repurposing. There were little groups of people, uh, you know, who got together around particular themes. And um, so I would share my bag projects. There was one challenge one year, Amy Butler's book, um, In Stitches. No, that's her baby book. She has a bag book. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but in January of that year, someone started a group and the goal was to make all of the bags in the book over the course of a year. And that was a really fun way to see other people's fabric interests, their techniques, connect with other people. So Flickr was really um, a very a good place for me to connect, but also be a little more personal with people than um, pattern review. Mm -hmm. And I, I connected with my friend Hillary Goodwin on Flickr. We were doing um, Alabama Channing hand sewing projects mm -hmm. in on that group. And um, and we just I, I don't I think we connected over the hand sewing, but also um, leather. We she repurposes leather and so do I. And she just has, you know, I felt. And still do. She is she's an amazing creative, amazing, amazing artist. Um, but she's a very generous of spirit person. She is she is very kind. And I felt particularly in the Jersey hand sewing, she was doing that well before me. She was very kind about my work and very complimentary. And I look at these pieces now and I'm like, ooh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I just remember- She was an early supporter. Yeah. Yes, yes. And an encourager. And, yeah. you know, without, some people encourage you in a way that makes you aware of your frailties. Mm -hmm. She encourages in a way that, makes me want to just do better like with an acknowledgement that this is not perfection but that's okay that's part of the process and so I think she and I you know just connected in that way um initially and, on Flickr and you the two of you ended up fast forward a little while doing this project together yes um called I think it was called nude is not a color yes. and I wondered if you could tell us about the project about how it came about and and what the results were okay so that project it, it was a very difficult time um so she and I connected in the Alabama Channon um Jersey sewing group and we, I think, goodness, we were making stuff for years, like three books. So however long it took her to produce these books, we would um, we would uh, make the patterns, cut, trace the patterns, airbrush the fabric, buy the kits. Like we were really fans of the technique and we felt like it was a fresh, you know, creative outlet. Mm -hmm. And so we really connected over that and enjoyed it. I started to blog in part because of the work I was doing in that group. I'm like, you know what? Let's let's show how the steps because it's slow stitching. So it takes a long time. So let me just do progress shots and stuff. Um, and so we just really. Uh, our, our friendship is very synergistic in that we encourage each other in in good fun ways and we challenge each other and um so we were i was writing the blog and the new collection uh her, her uh, natalie channon's new alabama channon's new collection was um was going to be released and i was ready i was you know the day it came out i was on the site looking at it and super excited to see what she would do and i had my blog post written 
And it was very, uh, so my niche, my first draft was about the new stencil designs mm -hmm. and the new silhouettes. And before I hit publish, I was like, something's not right about this. I don't, I'm not, this collection makes me unsettled. And I was unsettled to the extent that I knew once I figured out what my problem was, I knew I had to delete my draft and start again. And my problem was she had this entire collection and all of the models were size two white women. And the color palette, like the predominant color palette was this beige jersey with white paint or like a tan paint on top and then layered on another jersey fabric mm -hmm. and so it was screaming caucasian in and not that that was necessarily a problem but the whole collection was just so narrowly focused i felt excluded um and the color this beige jersey that she had, she called it nude. And I'm like, wait a minute. That I, I know. <laughs> so I guess another frame of reference. Let me just pull out for a second here and just say, so growing up in the Bahamas, we are a black majority country. Yeah. So everywhere I went, I felt included. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, diverse country, but our leaders are black, our uh, athletes, everywhere we look, we see ourselves. It's, you know, on the media, news, everywhere. I never felt like, oh, my goodness, someone's pushing me aside. Um, I went to a diverse school. My best friends were actually, goodness, Jamaican, <laughs> English, Welsh, you know. So I had a, a really good integrated foundation to my worldview and my life. And so feeling so radically excluded with this collection was glaring for me. And I worked in a, a department store in, um, in high school and they sold pantyhose and I was in the stock room and I had to stock these, these pantyhose and they're like nude, suntan, barely there, you know, and these, these companies are naming these colors for the white, audience. And I, you know, as a kid, I just remember feeling suntan, goodness, this is the palm of my hand color. I don't know, you know, and just feeling like these people don't know colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so I was aware of it. Um, and but I also knew, okay, I felt powerless to some extent. Um, as a kid and as a teen. But now as an adult, I'm looking at this collection from a brand that I had admired for the, the, the technique and the aesthetic. Um, but also I'd spent, invested a lot of time, spent a lot of money to support this brand and, you know, giving them free publicity on my blog. And so I was really invested um, psychologically with the brand. And, you know... So when I saw the collection, I was like, I, here's what doesn't sit right with me. The nude. That is not my nude. And if you call this collection that features a thin white woman and the most expensive items in the collection are this nude, you're communicating something. You're mm -hmm. telling the world that this is for white rich people. Yeah. And, and I didn't necessarily feel like that was the message that was intended, you know, and part of that may have been my own self-preservation to, to feel like I hadn't been, you know, baited and switched. Um, but so I wrote, um, I wrote the blog post and I just said, Hey, here's, you know, here's the collection. Here are my thoughts on the collection. This is a problem for me. This is not my nude. I don't like it. Um, and then that evening, being the problem solver that I am, I wrote a, um, an email to Alabama Channon. And I just said, hey, did you know this is what this communicates? Right. You know, and I'm like, I don't I don't think that's your intention. But here's what 
I see. And um, maybe you want to consider doing something different. And I got a, a generic reply back, not generic, because it was a person. Someone wrote back like a, a gatekeeper. Um, and I said, uh, the response was, oh, we, we're sorry. It was a, a, a dismissive response. And I felt like, you know what, I need someone with some decision making power to respond. I think I want someone who can change things to hear me. Yeah. So I sent another email and I'm like, here. And the second email, like the first email was, hey, this is what it looks like. The second email was educational. It was me intellectually saying institutionalized oppression, systemic racism, marginalized groups. So I was, you know, writing a thesis on why this is a problem. And particularly for a company based in Alabama, right? The, you know, the history of cotton in Alabama, deep South slave, you know, just there's so much there. And if you are in the midst of this environment and you don't see that this messaging is problematic, I need you to see why it's problematic. And so I, from my educational perspective, I'm like, here is more information for you. I'm not just some random person whose feelings are hurt. There are, there are roots to why this is a problem. Mm -hmm. And um, that message was pretty much, you know, the perspective of if someone has food in their teeth or lipstick, you know, smears or, you know, you want them to know, maybe you don't see this, but I'm, I'm here to help you. Mm -hmm. And um, the response I got this, I think the third time was from Natalie herself. Okay. And the message was so hurtful to me. And, and it's something I've never shared, like the, the, the exact wording of her message. Yeah. I've never shared it because I, the, the point of it, I don't want it to be nitpicked. Sure. It then becomes about her language. And the, at the end of the day, she basically said there are people dying of cancer around the world. There are bigger issues. I'm a small business and this color is named what it is. And that's the way it's going to be. Like it was very much. So what? I, I, your, my needing to, um, like she, she's talked about how difficult it would be to change the name, which I thought was bizarre because I was able to delete a whole blog post in a minute and rewrite it. So the idea of changing a word or did not seem insurmountable to me. And it fell. And the, the fact, the reference to people dying of cancer, you know, I'm like, people died in the Middle Passage and on plantations farming cotton, you know, it probably on the land your factory is built on. So For hundreds of years. Hundreds yeah. Hundreds of years. And yep. so just I was startled at how dismissive and cavalier she was and how insignificant she made me feel. Um, insignificant from a race perspective, insignificant from a consumer perspective, insignificant from an educated person attempting to advise you perspective. Like there were so many elements that I was just like, felt completely, I, I don't, disregarded, you know, just trivialized. It was just startling, the lack of care for for the messaging that she was giving and the perception and the fact that I was helping her was just glaring to me. And so I, you know, it took me a few days and again, I'm married to a clinical psychologist and he's, you know, we're both very <laughs> intellectual and very, you know, we're having these, these quite these conversations and I'm trying to understand. And he was like, honey, there's nothing to understand. She doesn't want to do it. You don't matter to her. And what the story you were trying to tell, the audience you were trying to speak for is not an audience she cares about. And if you know my husband, he is the kindest, most sweet, gentle person you could ever meet. So for him to give me that hard line, this woman is not someone you want to help, was, was glaring to me. So I, you know, it took me a while. But I went back um, to my blog post and I, I, I told my audience, I'm like, guys, guess what? 
I, you know, you've followed my blog for all this time and I've been making these projects and, you know, investing my time and energy in this brand. And I, I think it's important that I tell you, I will no longer be doing that. And here's why. And mm -hmm. I basically, you know, gave a summary of what I just shared with you. And I just said the response I got was so dismissive and so hurtful. I, I will no longer support this company. Um, and then that started a, a really interesting dialogue on my blog. The post is still there if anyone wants to go and read it. It's just type in nude is not a color and you'll, <laughs> you'll find it. Um, so there was a there was really good conversation around it um, for people of color who have who are we we know this we see this everywhere it's it was not news it is not a surprise to us and a lot of them were were grateful that I was calling her on it there was a lot of conversation from white people who it never occurred to and they had, it was oh wow I did not realize that this is a problem nude is what you know, that's what I call my my pantyhose that, you know, that's what I when I wear lip gloss, you know, and like th there were references to all the ways that they use nude in their life without intending to marginalize people and just having their eyes open and good conversations about it. Several people were like, now I see it everywhere and I, I speak up where I, I can. Um Several people emailed her, not several, like a lot of people told me they emailed her and they, you know, going back and forth um, over time. I kind of disengaged um, from the conversation uh, for my own emotional preservation. Um, but over time, I don't even the, the time frames are kind of blurry. But over time, people would tell me that they've emailed this company when they saw it and they got a positive response and others who would keep, you know, when she did change the color, someone um, emailed me and like they did, she changed the color from nude to ballet. And yeah. And I was like, okay, great. You know? And they're like, did she, did she email you? Did she apologize? Did she reach out? I'm like, why would she? Why would she? It was done in the cloak of darkness at night, you know, and so the change was eventually made. And I think a lot of people like flooded her. There were boycotts, but I wasn't um, like I said, I disengaged because it was emotionally a lot. But in the midst of that, Hillary, um, you know, she she she's an alongside her. She she got alongside me um, with communicating the message to her followers as well um, because she too was making and sharing and she she came up with the idea for a quilt because that's her her primary medium mm -hmm. and what she did was she asked her like she contacted several quilters and asked them to contribute to this quilt project and the quilt idea was to have each of them make a, a quilt block pardon me, with fabrics in the skin tones of their households. Okay. And so in there, in your family, you know, represent the skin of your, the nude colors in your family. And she got these blocks from multiple contributors around the world and asked me, she asked me to take a picture of myself um, or send her a picture of myself that, that she would use. I didn't know what the plan was at this point. Um, but ironically, I had a tan jersey, uh, tan, a beige jersey um, fabric, and I stitched up an Alabama Channon pattern, just the um, tank dress. I don't know if I stitched it off or it was in progress when the, the um, when things shifted, but I took a picture wearing this dress and Hillary then used that as the basis for the quilt and filled in everybody else's block to make my dress. And she added, um, oh goodness, she quilted it with Rachel Dore and made this amazing quilt that is called yeah. Not we'll, Color. We'll link to it in the show notes because I'm sure people will be curious to see it after hearing so much about it. So thank you yes. for sharing that story. 
And um, I want to make sure we get to your incredible book. Um, and so I would love to know, because I know that there's also a story behind how that book came about. So you were at Quilt Market and we, yes. we already talked about how you learned to embroider as a child. So you knew how to embroider, et cetera, but you were at Quilt Market and that's where you first sort of got in touch with the publisher. Yes. So I was at Quilt Market and... Um... I was visiting, I was helping with Latifa Safir um, at her booth. And I had, I'd worked with representatives from C&T with their project, their product craft text. Yeah. And I, but I hadn't met anyone there in person. So I went by their booth to introduce myself and someone saw what I was wearing and they thought, oh, you look so artsy. This is so fun. You know, you look right. like you have a book in you. And I'm like, what? She was scrolling my Instagram. She's like, you look like you have a story to tell. And she encouraged me to attend a, um, so the acquisitions editor is usually at these events to have meetings with people for book pitches. And they told me, you know, she's like, you should really sign up to meet with our acquisitions editor tomorrow. I'm like, I don't have a book idea. I don't know why I would do this. And, this, and was this Roxanne Serta? She's the person I did meet with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. She's on our board. So that's fine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And she was, she was, she was wonderful, but this was, I, I don't even remember who the person was who was telling sure. me this. Yeah. And, you know, and I was like, uh -huh, I've got nothing to lose. And so the next day I show up and I'm like, hi, Roxanne, you know, it's nice to meet you. I don't really have a book idea. I was encouraged to come and talk with you. Um, and she was like, okay, tell me about your craft. Tell me about what you do. And I did. And she was like, so do you think you have a book? that you want us to, to work together on. And I said, you know, honestly, no, I, I don't. Um, and here's why. And then they had a lot of books on display and I grabbed a, a few of their books. And I'm like, when I flip through these books, I don't see myself. I don't see my children. I don't see, I don't see my stories. I don't see my hands. I don't see my skin in models. These books do not look like they're written for me. These books do not appear to have me in mind. And so I don't, I'm not really certain why you would want my story based mm -hmm. on what I see. Right. And, you know, and it was, I, I, I felt like I had nothing to lose. So I, I kind of went all guns blazing, you know, and to her immense credit, she was so, she heard me, she took it and she acknowledged their failings and their shortcomings in that regard. And she says, we are, we want to write the ship. We want to do something different. We want to change. And we, if we, but we can't do that unless we have people of color who are willing to get on board and help us. And, you know, she was like, if you have a book story that comes to mind, a book idea that comes to mind, please reach out. I, I, she was very much like, I understand your res reticence. Um, but I want to hear your story. If you, if you decide to work with us. And, mm. um, in that moment, I was still like, huh, you, you have a lot of work to do, um, before I can commit to this. And, you know, she, so that was in October or so. And she had emailed me, the steps for writing a book map and a plan and everything. And over the course of months, I, I, so I didn't, I didn't submit anything, but I was in conversation with her about, mm -hmm. um, you know, what changes CNT was looking to make. And eventually what happened was they devised a diversity advisory panel um, with other makers of color. And you know, she because she was emailing me, what can we do to change this? What can we do to change that? And it got to the point where I'm like, okay, I understand that you want to help, mm -hmm. but you are tapping me for resources and my lived experience as a diversity advisor, but you're not paying me. So I feel like I'm being taken advantage of. I feel like you are mining me to improve your business, but not, you know, paying me what I'm worth. And but, you know, and I'm like, that's that's a historical problem here. That is the foundation of slavery. You know, I cannot work for free. 
And you shouldn't expect this to. You should understand the value of what we bring to the creative space. And in the same way, you're going to pay the person who is cleaning your office because they provide a service. You need to pay people who actually make a worldly difference to your organization. So she um, they came up with the diversity advisory panel and every participant who, who joined the, the conversation was paid for our time and our contributions. We shared a lot of real world um, suggestions and guidance on how to make the publishing, their publishing more diverse, their how to, you know, get connected with a different, more diverse range of authors. And, and you know, simple things like making sure there's diversity in the, the imagery. If, if you have hands in your photo, you know, put a man's hand in the picture. Put a woman's hand in the picture. Use a child. Like, you know, a lot of what gets people stuck is under, is thinking that my book is, you know, writing a book is very personal mm-hmm. to the author. And so yeah. a lot of authors in their space, they don't have access to that diversity. But being advised by the publisher, hey, make sure you factor these these points in, you know, that mm-hmm. they, they devise some of that, some guidance for their authors who may not default to diversity. Um, so once that started happening, once I saw their commitment um, to diversity and inclusion and telling our stories, I was in a better position to say, OK, here's here's the problem I saw with embroidery for me and here's how I can fix it. And so from that um you know, seeing the lack of diversity in embroidery patterns and having to figure out techniques to stitch hair in our images and how to color the skin in our images. You know, those once I was figuring out those things for myself, I thought, you know what, if I'm having to learn this, other people will want to learn this as well. And so that's how the embroidery um, angle for represent came about. And I love that there's an exclamation point in the title. I think that that's really unique and really makes a point, which is great. And when I saw that, I was like, that's fabulous. And so tell us a little bit about what we could find inside the book for people who haven't had a chance to check it out yet. So Represent Embroidery is a fun book, first and foremost. It is a book of images that are exciting, hopefully fresh, hopefully new to people. Um, There are 10 specific projects for all ranges of embroidery levels. Um, It also, because I'm a garment sewer as a foundation, there are projects that are machine sewn, um, excuse me, and also are, I, I call them bridge projects, where there's fabric applique and embroidery and crayon shading to help people ease into it, but still feel a little comfortable in maybe the fabric aspect of the embroidery. So there's a, um, so every project has a point um, and tells a little story. Um, So we've got uh, the denim jacket. That's one of my my uh, favorites, like all of them are favorites, but the denim jacket is uh, called work in progress. And it's a reminder that we don't need to arrive in perfection. We do not need to show up complete. We are all a work in progress. And with that denim jacket, I take, you know, we have little iron-ons. You can start stitching one design and get one little image stitched up and then come back a month later, add to it. And you can just use your use it as a stitch sampler. You can use it as a way just to um, a palette cleanser between other projects and you just add to it as you go. Um, so that's a really fun one. Um, I have um, a mental health awareness pin cushion. It's called um, It's Okay to, to Not Be Okay. And that that talks about the fact that We struggle so much with the pressure to be um, perfect, to be right, to pursue and be prosperous. And there's so much pressure to, you know, excel that it sometimes is at the expense of our mental health. And it the pincushion project is a reminder to pause and seek help and to um, to reset. 
Um, with that project, I list some mental health resources that people can, can access if they need to. Um, there is stigma in the, the Black community around uh, mental health awareness. I think it's kind of linked with spiritual, um, you know, the church and religion to some extent where there it appears to be dichotomous, where people feel like I can either pray or get therapy. And I'm like, but you can do both or, you know, it doesn't you can you can still you can heal as a complete person by getting access to all the services you need. And so that's a, a, a good project I that I enjoyed. Um, I have a nude is not a color. Uh, the definition of nude project that has um, body silhouettes and th there are male and female silhouettes as well as um, in, uh, I don't want to say what there, there is a plus size option as well with that mm -hmm. to, for in, um, including um, different sizes. And with that, it's redefining and helping people remember nudity is about the physical form. It's not about skin color. Um, and so that's mm -hmm. a fun one. The Why Not Hair Project, that is a, it's, it's a, it's a recognition of the fact that uh, people of color with different hair textures in America have been discriminated against for how they wear their hair. There have been you know, students who've had to cut yeah. their hair before a match. And yeah, that, something like that just happened here recently, actually a soccer coach, a soccer referee mm -hmm, and a little girl, she was cutting her braids off right before the match for exactly that reason. And he did get reprimanded. Actually, I think he got fired, but um, yeah, it still goes on. It's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. The way your hair grows out of your head is somehow a problem. And so the project, that project specifically is one, to bring awareness to people who don't understand the difficulty we face in just waking up and how we choose to wear our hair as we enter various settings and being told what is professional or not mm -hmm. is, right. you know, it's a problem. Yeah. But but it's a fun project. That's what I love about that particular project. It is the, the foundation is a difficult uh, perspective, but the textures, the fibers that we use, the techniques in that project are so fun. I, I love the dimension of um, a French, not Afro. Um, I love being able to, you know, do braids in in yarn and in floss and just to give texture and dimension. So it's, you know. So this is a great book that people should absolutely go check out. I hope after hearing these stories, I don't see how you could not. I mean, I think it's um, it's it's really fabulous and, and, and an awesome um, contribution to the craft books that are out there on the shelf. So um, I'm really glad that you wrote it. And so thank you for that. And um, you have a busy schedule. We were just talking before we started recording about some of the places that you're going to be traveling to and also teaching virtually. Um, so I know you're going to be um, heading to the UK to do some teaching, and then you have a couple of virtual events coming up. So I just wanted to give you a moment to, to share those in case people would like to, to learn from you. Yes. So I will be at the Festival of Quilts uh, the first week of August, and that is in Birmingham, UK. I'm really excited about that. That comes with uh, teaching opportunities, but also vending opportunities. So I have... I have been frantically stitching up new patterns, new embroidery patterns um, to, to share there. I don't know what the embroidery world in the UK is, um, but I'm excited to, um, to share my book and some of the projects with them. Um, and then when I return, I'm going to be teaching at the Making Zen re Online Retreat. Right. In September. And in September, mm -hmm. yes. And I'll also be teaching at the So Creative Lounge uh, virtual retreat as well. So That's those are so, so good. So if folks want to take a class and get to know you and have some time to interact with you, those are three upcoming opportunities that you can access either by traveling or just at home from your computer. So I think that that's great to hear about. And I want to make sure we get to your recommendations because you have a couple of really good ones. And one of them is to listen to the Black Women's Stitch podcast, which I also love. Yes. Yes. And you've been a guest on that show as well. 
Yeah, Lisa has had me on a couple times and I she is just such a wonderful person. I love her fire, her energy. She is she's a force and I love the way she uplifts her community, me specifically. <laughs> I benefited from her love and support and I just love the questions she asks and how she challenges um the community to do better and to be more visible and bold with our presence. Absolutely. And you were saying that you got a rigid head loom, but you haven't touched it yet. So it can be a little overwhelming to sort of venture into weaving. But um, what made you decide that you wanted to try? I'm a thrifter and I saw it at a thrift store. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love I love textiles. I love the dimension. And so I the idea of being able to uh, to enter enter into that that realm at a reasonable mm-hmm. price <laughs> just appealed to me. Um, but it's so hot here. Like the idea of weaving anything mm-hmm. just feels overwhelming because I'm like, where am I going to make? What am I going to make? Where am I going to wear mm-hmm. this hot thing? So I don't know. <laughs> I just need to figure out what the end result would be. Right. There will be a moment when a project Uh, you know, makes itself clear that it needs to be made and then you'll have the loom and be ready to do it. Well, Bianca, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was just great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And welcome to everyone who is now getting to know me for the first time. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Craftsy. Calling all crafters, are you ready to dive deep into your favorite crafting projects and learn new techniques along the way? Then it's time to join Craftsy Premium Membership. For only $1.49, you'll receive a full year of access to expert-led tutorials, patterns, and projects in every category you can imagine. With a massive library of resources at your fingertips, you'll be able to create your best work yet and bring your crafting dreams to life. Don't wait. Sign up now at CraftsyOffers.com and discover the endless possibilities of Craftsy Premium Membership. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.